Holy shit, we're live. It is Stick to Hockey Live, episode, oh, I think it's 74. I, I gotta change that. But anyway, I'm a little rusty. It's Jason Martinez, and there he is, coming to you from the Great White North. It is Anthony DeMarco. What's going on, Ant? Long time no speak. <laughs> yeah, just, uh, it's been a minute for sure. So much so that your hair's grown out. I'm just fucking with you. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, my hair's definitely grown out. I need to get to the barber soon. But uh, no, yeah, uh, obviously our schedules have, our respective schedules have been upside down a bit, but it's looking like we could get this back on a weekly, uh, on a weekly uh, format, which I'm looking forward to. We were healthy scratched a few weeks. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Boy, that's like benching or healthy scratch is like the term of the season in the NHL. You know, Flyers have had their share, obviously with Frost and other guys being benched in game, but Jesus, line A being healthy scratched $8.7 million sitting in the press box on Sunday at Wells Fargo. He's not happy about it. He's embarrassed. Gaudreau getting benched. I mean, Huberto, it's all over the league. What the hell's going on? Nature of the league, man. You know, a lot of big contracts getting handed out over the last several years and a lot of guys not living up to it. I mean, who would have thought that Johnny Gaudreau wouldn't have the same impact as Col- in Columbus as he did in Calgary alongside Kachuk and Lindholm? I mean, I, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, you, you go back 17 months to Gaudreau mania in, um, in Philadelphia. And one of the non moves that really got the ball rolling for, I guess the eventual Chuck Fletcher firing. But I mean, I think we could all collectively look back and breathe a sigh of relief that Chuck Fletcher elected not to pay the necessary money to alleviate that cap space and hand out, a seven-year monster deal to Johnny Gaudreau, especially given the way things have transpired over the last 17 months and given the way Gaudreau has played in Columbus and them embracing a rebuild, probably a massive bullet dodge there from Chuck Fletcher. Yeah, what the hell's going to happen in Columbus? I mean, they finished in the bottom spot last year. They added all these D pieces. You know, they have they have some talent there. They, you know, they get Fantilli, I think it's been a, a big positive for them. But, geez, they lost nine in a row. It's a mess. The the Babcock debacle right out of the gate in the offseason and didn't even make it to training camp. Now Pascal Vincent is trying to piss on a lot of fences and show who's boss and, you know, benching key guys. I mean, where the hell's this going? I imagine Yarmo is going to be out. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a long time coming there. Like Yarmo and John Davidson, although Davidson left for, I believe, two, Rangers. three years to go yeah, to the yeah. Rangers to take on the president role there. But it's been about a decade there. Like the last GM was Scott Housen, and you're going back a while. And that's a very hands-off ownership group in Columbus. But it feels like it's going to start coming to a head. And look, Columbus has done a lot of good things, I think, like in the draft for sure, like Ken Johnson, Adam Fantilli, uh, Trey Fix-Wolanski, who actually just went back to the AHL today. But it, it just, it's so stale. And it felt like pre-John Tortorella, they were irrelevant. And post-John Tortorella, they have gone back to irrelevance. And I mean, I don't think it's all doom and gloom there, but it's kind of, they're they're in an organization that you don't really know which way they're going. Are they going east? Are they going west? Rebuild? Competitive? You would have thought they would have been moving into more of a competitive window with the additions of Severson and Ivan Provrov, Adam Fantilli coming in, but it's just not working for them, and it just feels like they need an organizational facelift. Yeah, they need an organizational philosophy. They have talent there, but none of it fits together. 
And that just shows you that it's not just talent that wins. Uh, speaking of winning, Ant, the Flyers are on a heater right now, a five-game win streak. And, and these teams they've beaten, um, they're not chicken shit teams. Like, you, you look at, you know, they lose to San Jose. I think San Jose was 0-10-1 at the time. Um, they get their first win against the Flyers in that 2-1 game. And I didn't think the Flyers played particularly poorly in that game. Um, I think they got goalied a little bit, but ultimately they they handed San Jose. San Jose got their first win against them. But since then, they go to Anaheim. They avenge the loss here at Wells Fargo Center, and they get a 6-3 win in Anaheim. Anaheim's a, a much better team than than we thought maybe coming into this year. Then L.A., you go into King, the Kings, and you're on a back-to-back, and they're not. And you come away with a 4-2 win with Cal Peterson, of all people, in that against his former team. Then you come home from the trip, and you, then you go back out, and you face Carolina down in Raleigh. You win that game 3-1. to one. Then you come home, and that's, that first home game after a trip's always tough, and they beat the Vegas Golden Knights, and then they take care of business against Columbus. A five-game win streak. Did you think – we didn't have any five-game win streaks last year. Did you think that this was possible, and in particular, this early in the season? I mean, they, they've definitely shocked us, and it's not just like them, you know, winning based off of like a high shooting percentage or great goaltending. What's that combined stat people use? PDO, which would often suggest maybe an unsustainable formula to winning. But I think what we're seeing with the Flyers is that their underlying process is really good. I believe Jay Fresh put it out there. I think it was about a week ago. He put out like a, like a stat card. And had the if the Flyers had a uh, like even a middle of the road power play, they would probably even have more wins uh, so far this season. But they're doing it just with really sound system play at five on five, and they're getting some really good play from obviously Travis Sanheim, who in my opinion has been their MVP so far this season. A guy who I believe internally is as untouchable as you can get. Obviously, his no trade clause has a bit to do with that. But I mean, I, I think that they were happily proven wrong for trying to trade him this summer. Uh, obviously, Travis Konechny slowed down a bit recently, but he's led the way offensively. Really nice season so far from Joel Farabee. I yeah. think that process-wise, he's probably been their best player and a point behind Travis Konechny for the team league amongst forwards and points. Owen oh, Tippett has really picked it up. Maybe my article about his uh about his extension maybe coming down the pike soon you know lit a fire under his ass and i mean cam atkinson he's putting up points haven't loved his game but you know points are points and he's done so in 13 points through 18 games and then probably the biggest shock through this through how many games they're in right now 18 18? games through i think has been sean walker and we could really talk about him that you know, he came over as almost like a throw-in in the Ivan Provorov three-way trade from the Los Angeles Kings. And he's a guy that I think, save for Travis Sanheim, has probably been your best defenseman. A right-shot guy has plugged the top four hole that has been that was left open with Rosmus Ristolainen on the shelf for the entire season to this point. And I think that uh, nobody has really expected what we've gotten from uh, Sean Walker, including those within the Flyers organization. Yeah. He's a guy has a career high of five goals. He did it twice in LA and he's going to well surpass that this season. You know, it's amazing. I was talking about this on Flyers daily that the Flyers have gotten five total goals from the combination of Lawton, Forster, Frost and Cates. And they've gotten 33 combined goals from uh, Konechny, Farabee, Tippett, and Atkinson. And, you know, one of the most amazing stats, I think, this season, because you've been through it, Flyer fans have been through 
you know, starts to games for what seems like a decade and the team always trailing and chasing the scoreboard. They have the most first period goals in the NHL. And when they score first, they have a, a, a 10 and one record, which leads the NHL. Where the heck did that come from? <laughs> it, it's really, it, it kind of goes to show that a lot of the problems that we've seen with the Philadelphia Flyers, maybe going back to, I, I was going to say post pandemic, but there were a lot of problems that were going on before the pandemic as well, before LA Vigneault temporarily righted them uh, before the pandemic shut down in 2019, 20, but it was almost like a mindset thing that you would see the Flyers play games where they would just get blown out of the building and absolutely dummied and not be able to just play a sound defensive game or just a sound all-around game. But even though you had really good players and really good talent, and the way that I've seen it now is that even though on paper maybe you don't have as much talent as past years, you have a bunch of guys who are buying in and a bunch of guys who are all pulling in the same direction. And, you know, a lot was made of them, you know, moving on from a lot of the problem children this past summer in Kevin Hayes and Tony D'Angelo, Ivan Provorov. And then you go back even to the summer 2021, where you move on from Shane Gossespierre and Jake Voracek. You know, I'm not going to dub Claude Giroux as a problem child, but he was obviously a big voice in that locker room, the captain for almost a decade. And it's the first season, and we saw the transition going on last year, but this is like the first year where it feels like that Giroux-era Band-Aid has been completely ripped off. Yeah. Because you kind of had the holdover of like Kevin Hayes, who was like a bridge to that era. And Ivan Provorov was kind of a bridge to that era as well. But now you move on from those two guys who both wore letters in the past for this team and had them subsequently removed last year. And it just feels like a completely new era. Like for me, like I look at a guy like Travis Sanheim and I'll eat my crow on it. I never thought that he had this type of game in him. I was always on the fence of beating that Ivan Provorov was the better defenseman and that Ivan Provorov suffered from not having a legit top pair. But I was wrong. Travis Sanheim has not only exceeded better in Ivan Provorov's role, but he's playing on his off wing or his offside rather. And to me, like I know John Tortorella has been very... I don't want to say heroic, but very stern on the fact of not giving out letters and anointing a firm leadership group. But I mean, to me, I think Travis Sanheim should have a letter because he's someone that I heard as early today wants to be in Philadelphia yes. and is someone that really takes pride in the opportunity that he's been given and not just given, taken this year. Because yeah. I don't think it was a slam dunk that he was going to be your number one top, top pairing defenseman, but he's taken it. He's on a long-term contract that, hey, if he's playing at this level or even 90% of this level, $6.25 million is going to be a very good bargain for him. Yeah. And, I mean, I I'm looking at Travis Sanheim as a guy who probably should be wearing a letter sometime soon and someone who was probably buried in past years behind Provorov, behind D'Angelo last year, but has really blown the doors off this year. You know, the thing about him, like I I was talking, I talked to Torts this morning for Hockey and Hounds, taped an interview. And there was a play, it was, I think it was in the Columbus game in the first period. He's on that right side and he gets the puck just at the top of the circle in the D zone and decides he wants to rush it. And there are guys literally hanging off him and just running into him. I said it was like watching the old sports center highlights of Chris Berman talking about Marshawn Lynch going beast mode or Jerome Bettis. Poof, poof, and he just keeps on trucking. 
the the way he attacks plays now physically, I'm not saying he's running guys through the boards and a big hitter, but the way he's willing to just plow ahead and be aggressive and decisive. I did not think this level of play was there either. I really didn't. He put on 20 pounds and he carries it. And, and you can tell like the, the guy's body language is so much more aggressive and confident. Yeah. And it was, and, even for me, like I, I'll eat my crow, but on a certain level, like I based off my opinion off of Sandheim of how he played in the playoffs in 2020 when he was pushed around against the New York Islanders yeah. and he hadn't filled into that big frame yet. Like he's a really big guy, but he just hadn't filled up with muscle. But now you're like, I can, comp- I was talking to someone with the Flyers um, a few weeks ago and I said that the way that he's playing now physically. And the way he skates reminds me of a Braden Coburn and Braden Coburn was a big dude. And like, he was not to be trifled with down low. And now that you're seeing Sanheim, you know, use his size, it's a very Coburn esque type of style. But what this one person said to me is just like, he's Coburn, but much better with the puck. And that's what's separating Sanheim from being Braden Coburn, who in my mind was a three, four and Sanheim, who this year is playing like a one, two. Because Sandheim's always had that puck IQ. He's always been able to move the puck up ice. Good decision-making. His problem was when he would get caught down low and he would kind of get pushed around a lot of the time. But now that he's, you know, beat, bulked up a bit, he's added that element to his game. You still have the skating. You still have the IQ. You still have the puck abilities. And you're seeing him really blossom here. All on the right side, which, coincidentally enough, Braden Coburn excelled on the right side as well, years alongside Timo Tiemann. And so that's what we're seeing right now, in my opinion. And look, we we see late bloom defensemen all the time in the NHL. And Sanheim drafted in 2014, coming up on, what, 27 years old shortly. And, you know, maybe I'm not sitting here saying he's going to win a Norris, although, I mean, he's probably top 10 in voting right now if we're talking today. Um, But, I mean, if he could be a stable right-side defenseman for this top pair for years to come, it's going to make them – their outlook on the back end a hell of a lot easier as they try and find out what they have with Andre York and probably eventually an Oliver Bonk. Yeah, and and as you mentioned before, the cost certainty with him for a long period of time. Did you see the quote he had when he was asked about Sean Walker that Sanheim hadn't? No, I didn't didn't O'Connor story. He said – asked about Sean Walker. He said, I wouldn't say that he goes overboard – I think it's more he knows he could do better from when he was in L.A. I think it's a good thing. He said it's good when guys recognize their mistakes. I've seen it the other way where guys don't ever recognize their mistakes. And then they think they played a perfect game. I think he does a great job recognizing that. And like Tort said, he's very passionate and competitive. That's about Walker. But pretty interesting who he's talking about there, about guys recognizing their mistakes and thinking they played a perfect game. I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, 100%. And look, I I think like I, I actually did a story on Sanheim a few weeks back. And I think we all know who he's alluding to there, probably Ivan Provorov. Mm -hmm. And look, I've been a staunch defender of Ivan Provorov for a long time. I have his jersey hanging right there, right there. I have an Ivan Provorov jersey. But I mean, the proof is in the pudding here. And I'll eat my words like, like Ivan Provorov was a failure. all in all as a top pairing defenseman here when the dust settled and I thought a lot of that was attributed to the partner and I do think that is true but I think that what you're seeing with Sanheim is the the what's going on between the ears and the accountability 
and how Sanheim was almost traded away and would have been traded away had it not been for Tory Krug not waiving his no trade clause and took that and used it as like fuel to better yeah. his game. And he acknowledged that, you know what? I'm a good skater. I'm a good, I have good puck abilities. I'm a good second pair defenseman. But if I want to take the next step here, I, I'm going to have to be able to change the way that I play in my own end down low. And when I spoke to him for my story, like he really kind of took it personally that maybe that contract, and this was just the sense I got, yeah. that that contract was hanging over him like it was a bad contract. Because you see Mackenzie Wieger get that contract, and that was pretty much the the, the bar setter for That was Sandheim. market value, yeah. It was the market value. And even if Sanheim would have just stayed what he was as just a solid second pair defenseman, $6.25 million over the next eight years is a fair contract. And I think that he kind of, it kind of upset him that not only did they try and trade him, but a lot of people, myself included, were saying like, man, now you're shackled to this guy for eight years, a second pair defenseman. And he's gone out. He went in the gym. He declined his invite to the world. And he really focused on the training tried to replicate the training of the Flyers at Performance Center at his home gym. Yeah. And he put in the work and now you're seeing it. And he's just a completely different defenseman, both stylistically, I find at times, in his own end specifically. And right here. And upstairs. And I yep. think that's why, like, and I, I don't mean to beat this horse again. And obviously, I, I'm not in the room. I don't know how the dynamic is. But if there's a next guy to wear a letter, like Ivan Provorov had on his jersey, I think it should go to Travis Sanheim. Yeah, the thing is, too, I remember when that deal didn't happen. And I said at the time, either here or on Flyers Daily, sometimes the best trades are the ones you don't make. And imagine if, you know, a 30, what a 32, 33 year old Tory Krug's here and Sandheim's doing this in St. Louis. And you're going, what did you do? Like, you know, why didn't that, why didn't you that flourish here? Number one. And, you know, did you give up too early on a guy um, that had the, the new contract? Let's talk about Walker. Um, because you've mentioned we're going to get to tip it in the extension of what you reported there, but let's talk about Walker because this is a conundrum wrapped in a riddle. Walker comes in, he's been obviously more than anybody thought. You know, in LA, he was probably, you know, Dowdy's there. He's the right side guy. When you watch LA, you're watching Dowdy. So he comes here and he's just been a revelation. He really pushes the pace. He's good defensively, but he can really work in transition well. I think he fits the system that they changed kind of to this year perfectly. But what do you do here? You got a guy in a final year who can yield you something in return. I think he's going to be able to yield you a lot for a couple of reasons. Well, obviously, the level of play, the fact that he's a right shot guy, the unicorn, and you're not making any dough. You're not making any money. So he'll fit on anybody's cap. So what do you do in this situation? Do you extend him? Do you trade him and get some assets in return and try and, and then just sign him in the offseason if you can? I don't. What's the answer here when it comes to Walker? I, I know they don't have to decide now. But what do you do here? Well, I was talking to someone about Sean Walker earlier today, actually several people. And the interesting thing about Walker is like, he's not ancient. He's 29 years old. And I mean, that's not young, but he's someone that could probably help your blue line in a top four capacity, theoretically for another three, four years. And the other part about this is, is that if you trade Sean Walker, what are you going to get for him? Now, I think that if some team comes along and they're going to say, we'll give you a first round pick, I think you kind of have to do it, given the nature of where the Flyers are at organizationally. It's just a no brainer. But even if you get into the second round pick territory, 
is it worth it to move on from a guy like Sean Walker, given your lack of, (laughs) pardon me? Like two and a prospect. Yeah. Like it's, I don't think it's as, and look, I, I equated his not stylistically, but what he would bring to your team, his tier level to like peak Justin Braun, like Mm. a third pair, four or five defenseman who will maybe fetch you a third, fourth round pick at the trade deadline. He's not that. And I think that him battling injuries last year really kind of made his type, his value foggy for us. And the fact that he was just a throw in to make the dollars work in that three-way trade that saw Provorov end up in Columbus. But he's come in here. He's been amazing with the puck. He's been good in his own end. Like I said, save for Travis Sanheim, he's been their best defenseman. And they don't have many right shot options here. Like, look, Belpedio, he's he's not an NHL defenseman on a consistent basis. Ristolainen, I mean, I guess you're, you're locked into him for another three years beyond this year. But I beyond though beyond Risto, like they don't really have any right shot options as consistent NHLers. Ronnie Adderd, who knows how far away he is from the NHL. All of, of Oliver Bonk, their first round pick from this past season, is a guy who maybe they expect to take on that role. But are is Risto going to play to the same level as Walker is right now? Is Ronnie Adder going to be anything more than a third pairing guy? How far away is Oliver Bonk? Like, could Sean Walker be kind of like bridge. The, the bridge, bridge to an Bonk. Oliver Bonk? <laughs> and and to this point. You also don't want to cut out the legs from a team that's legitimately playing well. Yeah. Now, look, I, I think that they've considered keeping him. I mean, maybe a three, four-year contract. Who knows? Maybe it's a one- or two-year contract. Maybe he wants to test UFA. But I don't think this is a scenario where Danny Breer and company are just going to be saying, yeah, come get him for any price, third-round pick, yeah. and we'll give him away. No If you come along with a first round pick or a second round pick and a decent prospect, I think the Flyers have to listen there. But I don't think this is any more like a situation where you're going to flip Sean Walker for whatever you can get because he's proven to be that valuable. I I think you nailed it with what you said in the sense I was talking to somebody about this today at the Flyers practice. You know, we got this notion of, oh, the rebuild. Is the rebuild still on? They got a record of 10-7-1 and... Uh, they're not going to do this properly. I'll read an email I got from a guy in just a second. But, you know, Danny Breer said, ultimately, the players will decide the pace of the rebuild. And right now, the players are playing well, and they're winning. It's going to be a long season. There's 82 games. You cannot measure it on the first 18 and say, well, they're ready. So there's going to be pain that's going to come. Torts has talked about that. But what does it signal to the players in the room? Because I think the players, Ant, you know, when they heard the term rebuild, they're like, oh, yeah, well, fuck that. We'll just go out and win. You know, they, they don't want to go through a rebuild. Guys that are already in the NHL, they, they've won career. So, you know, part I think part of the record is that guy saying, yeah, I'll show you rebuild and we'll go out and play well. And the players will determine that if you take a, an important piece away, you know, and it, not in in the sense like you're trying to tank, but you're taking away their ability to win games. I don't think that goes over well in the room. And and the thing is, is that, yes, we've only now for what, six months heard the term rebuild openly from them. You know, pre Danny Briere, pre Dan Hilferty, pre Keith Jones, we never heard it from Chuck Fletcher, Dave Scott. That wasn't the mandate. But for all intents and purposes, have they not kind of been rebuilding since early 2022? Like in a lot of ways, 
you know, save for the year too. Yeah, like it, it's like since that trade deadline in 2022 when you traded Giroux for Tippett in a first round pick and Broussard for a fourth and Justin Braun for a third, they've kind of been rebuilding. And save for the Tony D'Angelo acquisition, which was just ludicrous in hindsight, they've made they've only made moves that like a rebuilding team would make. So they they've already had the ball rolling in this direction. And that's why, like, it's not a traditional rebuild where you have to gut the team down to the studs and rebuild it because a lot of good young players were already here. Bobby Brink was already here. Noah Cates was already here. Morgan Frost was already here. Tyson Forster was already here. Cam York was already here. You know, Emil Andre's already here. Urson's already here. Like, the for all the bad that Chuck Fletcher did, and there was a lot of it, they drafted very, very well, given what they had to work with. Mm-hmm. You know, for a team that was remaining competitive, they drafted pretty damn well. And I think that's a big reason as to why Brent Flair is still here, because that they've done very well in that department since 2019. I think when we heard rebuild, it was changing the faces of the team and the philosophy of the team more so than just gutting the entire roster now they need high-end talent we know that and but they have theoretically- it in and Michkov too they're two the two best prospects aren't aren't even over in north you know aren't even here yet yeah two exactly so i mean i don't think this has to be like you have to always tear it down to the studs like a arizona or an ottawa and look at ottawa they they ripped it completely down they drafted really really well you know you look back at the 2020 draft I think they had the third overall pick and the fifth overall pick, and they probably at this at today have the two best players in that draft in Stutzla and Jake Sanderson. Yeah, and they're still not close to the playoffs. And a lot of people like it like to use the Rangers model as, as a re, like their rebuilding model as the way that the Flyers should look to. And like, look, I'm not comparing Sean Walker to Jacob Truba, but you know, they traded a lot of assets to bring in a Jacob Truba and kind of fast track that rebuild and be that second pair right shot guy. Now, again, Sean Walker isn't Jacob Truba. Walker's, what, four years older than Jacob Truba was. But sometimes it doesn't hurt to add to a rebuild while you're still trying to advance it along at a slower pace. And I don't think block guys And not block young guys too. Yeah, you're not going to block young guys. And look, I, I just throw out th- three, four-year contract because if we're talking like a bonk type of deal. But if you want to keep Sean Walker and he still keeps up this play right through the season, like why wouldn't he get a three, four-year deal in free agency? Like right shot defensemen are always coveted. They're oh. always overpaid. That's why Erica Branson got a four-year contract or mm-hmm. Risto got a five-year contract or David Savard got a four-year contract. So it's a very interesting situation they're in with Walker because he could help them bridge the gap to their future top four right shot guy. But if he continues like that, they can maybe get a decent price for him at the deadline. But I just don't think it's a scenario where someone comes along with a second round pick and only that, and you with your eyes closed, just accept it because I don't think that it would be maybe not even worth it to take it given the way that this team has played and the role that he's played on the team. Yeah, we know Jonesy's talked about building the blue line too, and that's going to be a big thing. Yeah, I think sometimes people equate the word rebuild with sucking and losing. Like, yeah, you rebuild, there's going to be losses that come with it, but
but you don't have to be a team that gets 55 standings points to for it to be considered a rebuild. I, I think that, you know, our world is full of like extremes. You either agree with me completely or you vehemently disagree. Like the gap and living in the, the murky middle is not an area where a lot of people live. I got this email from a guy um, yesterday. Uh, his name's Paul. And he said, whatever happened to the rebuild? That was the subject. He said, uh, ask Torts about whatever happened to doing the rebuild the right way. Oops, he said, sorry. sitting more, yeah, sitting Morgan Frost <laughs> for almost half the games so far, isn't doing it the right way. It becomes personal for Torts. Happens with every team he's ever been with. Flyers will be stuck in the mud until Torts is gone. He said, Jonesy had me fooled. Looks like a used car salesman now. And you look, they're not 13, three and one. They are 10, seven and one. It's not like they're on this outlandish, you know, points pace or anything like that. They've had a good start. They've won five straight games against 18 games in, but this notion, I, I don't know that people flyer fans know how to handle a rebuild because we've never knowingly handled a rebuild. They went that five-year period without making the playoffs pre and into Lindros, but you know, it's a different world now. And you see all these teams that suck for Bedard or, you know, end up getting a Connor McDavid. But, you know, accepting that losing thing to me is such a stain. Look at Buffalo again with this freaking Sabres team. You know, they're eight, nine and one. I mean, Jesus Christ, how long is this fucking rebuild going to go on in Buffalo and Ottawa? They're on the treadmill of, hey, we have good players, but it doesn't result on the ice at all it's crazy look it's it is easy to say just lose and tank in this but like i've used this example before but i'll say it again and i'm not comparing me to the nhl but even if you're playing on a beer league team they plug in the scoreboard and like like and you lose badly all the time it causes such a bad vibe where like you just start to hate going to the rink and you hate playing and you hate the guys you're with. And yes, there's a big difference between a beer league and the NHL, but losing is so infectious. And when it goes on for so many years, it becomes worse and worse debilitating, and worse. And I think that the flyers room was very infected post pandemic. And you know what? You could probably make the case that it should have been blown to smithereens when Hextall got moved on from before Heck Fletcher came in and was tasked with saving the Hextall plan. And momentarily, it looked like it was possible in that first year of AV and BNF and Flyer and all that. But then post-pandemic, it really reared its ugly head that it was too far gone. But there's a lot of holdovers from that. There were go- There's guys still here that... We're part of that. The Hearts, the Sandheims, the, the Konechnys, Farabee, Morgan Frost kind of felt that as well. And I think that the rebuild, not as much about getting high-end talent because you need talent to win. You can have the best you know, headspace and the best like uh, attitude in the world, but if you don't have talent, it won't mean a thing. But I think a more just under that was about changing the philosophy and changing, and I know it's been there their buzzword for two years now, but the standard that you really had to change up the mindset here and just play hard and play to win every game. And look, 
I don't think John Tortorella is perfect. Like I could give my thoughts on how he's handled Morgan Frost or some guys at times, but I can nitpick individual things that I've disagreed with him on. And he's far from perfect. And I'm sure that he'll tell anyone in hindsight that he's made mistakes, but all in all, I don't know how you can look at how he's coached this team for the last 13 months and not say like, man, it is completely different. Yeah. than any other season that we've seen with the slight obsession uh, exception of maybe two months under AV in 2019-20. Yeah. Aside yeah. from January, February of 1920 of 2020. Yeah. I don't remember a team looking this well oiled probably since the days of Peter Laviolette. And I think that does count for something. Yeah. And the thing is too, you know, if you want to ding them with the, th- the frost handling, which we'll get into in a second, uh, but you also got to go, okay, how has TK flourished under him, Konechny? How is now the, the tough love of last season? And I know he was really hard on Sanheim last season. How is that rearing? And how's that returning now? And then even Risto last year, the beginning of the season last year for Risto, those two were at ears all the time. And they got Risto to a place with his NHL game where he's not overrunning plays. He's playing with structure and he had his best year. I wonder if that's going to be the case when he comes back because he hasn't played yet this year. Do you have to go through that process again or does Risto take from last year and that applies into this year and playing with that structure and and discipline. Uh, But you can't go, well, he mishandled uh, frost or he, you don't like the way he handled this situation and not consider the other end of that, which is the success he's had with players. Let's talk about frost because he's played in what? 10 of the 18 games. Doesn't look like he's going to be back in tomorrow against the Islanders based on practice today. And just where is this going? You know, the whole thing over the summer, his contract kind of strung out. And that can stress out an organization from from time to time. You know, sometimes people get annoyed when a player in his situation is it it gets a drawn out negotiation. Uh, But he comes into this year and, you know, he, he had a really good second half last year. But he just hasn't been able to build on it this year because he's just been so inconsistently out of the lineup. Yeah, like I think that there's blood on both sides here or blame on both sides. And, you know, if you go back to the contract negotiations, uh, I think that it was a point where the players camp and the Flyers had two different opinions as to where the team was. And that came to the forefront while they were negotiating that contract. I, I And I do think that it's fair to say that Morgan Frost has taken this all in stride and he's been a very good sport about it. And he's been, had a very good attitude, but I do think that maybe the player's agent has not helped the situation. You know, I had heard that it was the player who eventually forced them to get a deal done before training camp because he didn't want to miss it. Look, I I think that the flyers have explored the market for Frost. I know at least two teams have kicked tires on him. But he's not a player that the Flyers are just going to give away for nothing. They don't need to. They have no reason to give him away for nothing. And they still are rebuilding. And he still is a guy that down the middle of the ice provides something that they don't otherwise have. You know, Ryan Paling, Sean Couturier, Scott Lawton, Noah Cates, none of those guys give the offensive creativity and upside that Morgan Frost does. So why would the Flyers just throw him away and potentially have them, you know, with their foot in their mouth if he starts putting up 50 points last, like he was last season. 
Now, do I think that John Tortorella has been a bit too hard on Morgan Frost? Yeah, I do. Because I, given the uniqueness of the player's skill set to the rest of the lineup, I, I don't see why you wouldn't just ride with him as a top six center for the first 40 games or so. And then if he's really falling on his face, you take him out of the lineup. Just because I think we've seen in the past that he provides something that no one else does. At the same time, you know, he's four points through 10 games. You're on pace for less than 40 points this year. I could kind of, if you prorated over an 82 game stretch, I mean, I get that they're looking for more. I get that the underlying process only counts for so much for a player like Frost. And eventually you have to translate and translate that into tangible points and tangible offense. So I get that as well. And I do. And I heard it again this morning that consistency is the big thing with Frost that shift for shift to shift or game to game. He could look like different, a different player in terms of his impact on the ice. But I also do understand that I, well, rather I don't understand why he's a guy that's so quick to be pulled out of the lineup when he makes a mistake. But we've seen it with other players too. Like, look, look, Bobby Brink was, you know, the, the flavor of the week a few weeks ago when he scored his first two goals in the NHL. And then in short order, he was taken out of the lineup. But then he comes back in and he scores a goal. Maybe yeah. they're looking for that response from Morgan Frost. And to your point, you saw tough love on Travis Sanheim last year and look at how he responded. Tough love on Travis Konechny and look at how he responded. Even Joel Farabee. Like, I think Joel Farabee's had a very quiet bounce back season after a very disappointing inaugural season under John Tortorella. You know, Noah Cates has been demoted to the fourth line. And obviously, Cates' skill set could make makes more sense as a force he as opposed to Morgan Frost. So I think they're looking for that kind of explosive response from Morgan. And I think at times that they've got it, but it's just a consistency factor. But I yeah. also do think his lack of consistency coincides with his lack of consistency just in the lineup in general. I think the other thing, too, is the, the human element of it when a guy knows that the way it's gone so far this year, that if I'm not producing, I'm probably coming out of the lineup. It almost prevents him from producing and playing safe. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, one thing feeds the other and it's a vicious cycle and there's, it's hard to, to kind of break it. You know, I thought that when Tippett came here and he got roster or lineup security, I'll call it, knew he was going to be in the lineup. That's when he started to flourish and, bring creative elements to his game. You saw his confidence grew. His decision-making on the ice became more dynamic. And, um, and you know, he, you know, 27 goals last year. He's got seven this year. I know you reported on Tippett um, about an extension because he is in the the final year of his RFA contract. So what what is the status of a Tippett extension? What would a Tippett extension look like? How's this play out? Well, I think that the Tippett extension, what it will look like is still up in the air, but I know that the Flyers are willing to go long-term with them. Now, look, I know Tippett's agency said that there was no report, no truth to my report. That's fine. Agents do that all the time. I mean, I, I'm, I'm confident in my sources and my information, but you know, I'll take, I'll take it for now. And when the you know, an agent were- putting out misinformation, what? Yeah, I know Frank Cervalli's dealt with this a bunch of times. So I, 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 this was my first experience with it, but honestly, it just means I think I'm doing something right. If they're taking the time to try and discredit it, but that's neither here nor there. Um, they had talks in the summer. Um, I have it on good authority that at the time the Tippett camp was 
you know, suggesting a $7 million AAV. I don't think that is the case anymore. I know that the Flyers will probably start with a five and a half AAV, maybe a Travis Konechny type of average annual value. And I do think it's something that the Flyers would like to go longer term with Tippett. I think that given his age, given what he, how he's played under John Tortorella, how he's adapted to the left side. And now that, you know, he had a slow start, much like he did last year, he's starting to find his groove. And if you could get him in it, like, to me, it seems like that $6 million range is kind of like where this will end up. Assuming it's a long-term deal. If we're go- talking six, seven, eight years. Now, that maybe isn't something that the player wants to tie himself up into. Maybe the player wants to go three, four years. So in that case, are we looking at more of like a $4 million AAV? You know, a four by four type of contract maybe is more advantageous for the player. So then he could have another kick at the can when he's still in his theoretical prime. So because if you buy up years of UFA, it's going to cost you more money. And as I put in my report two weeks ago, like I look at that Valeri Nachushkin contract that he signed two years ago with, or a year and a half ago with the Colorado avalanche. And he left money on the table coming off of a big year of 52 points in 62 games, $6.125 million. And the cap is going up now as well. So I think that six to $6.25 million is how I see this going. If they do in fact go longer term with Tippett, but if the player prefers to go shorter term, then it kind of uh, means an entire different negotiation tactic. And you'd probably look at the $4 million range. But I know a lot of people are hesitant and trepidatious to go long term with a guy who probably projects to be a long term second liner on this team because the Flyers still haven't sorted out their top line. What's going to become a Gautier? What's going to become a Mitchkov? Who's going to be a center? This, that, and the other thing. TK, his his impending or his looming extension, what will happen there? But I think they like the player enough to be willing to commit to him longer term as long as the AAV is right. And to me, I think that $6 million range is something that would be probably fair for all sides. And the thing with him is he's uh, will be a arbitration eligible restricted free agent after the season. So he's obviously not a total free agent. And um, so they, they do have some control here. You never want, wanted to go to the arbitrator, but um, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. TK's will be in the final year of that deal next year at 5.5. Um, but, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out when it comes to Tippett as well. Um, and what's the latest on the uh, team Canada investigation? I know we saw I mean, that. There's an appeal, a three-person appeal panel now looking at it or something? Yeah, it's very, it seems like whenever you think that it's going to be resolved or you're going to get some kind of resolution on it, it just keeps going. The latest I've heard is that right now nothing's happening. That That's the latest as of this Is this, this just going to disappear at some point? I mean, are we, are we getting to that point? I, I, it seems like it because this has been going on for two years. And, you know, I had somebody tell me um, that, you know, this was something that was hanging over Chuck Fletcher's head when he was writing the show. And like Chuck was always super stressed about it. And he was looking for goaltending options. And, you know, the first year goes by and then last season goes by. And now we're into this year. And at a certain point, you have to just start kind of operating as if that this isn't going to be a thing. Now, obviously, given the magnitude of it and the real life aspects to it, and it be going so far beyond hockey, hockey being such like a secondary issue in such a horrific event like this. But after a certain point of your 
going north of 24 months, you kind of just have to be like, okay, well, we have to operate like it's not a thing and that nothing will come of it. Because we thought, and myself included, I think Frank Saravalli thought that there was going to be a resolution sometime during the summer. But now we're almost into December. And eventually, you know, especially everyone thinks of Carter Hart when we talk about this, uh, this situation. But I mean, he's a pending RFA. He doesn't have a contract next year. I think that the Flyers are still listening or willing to listen on him, I should say. They negotiated a lot with teams over the summer. And I think that negotiations would have gotten a lot more serious had this not had it not been for the Hockey Canada thing. So it's going to be a very, very interesting few months as we get closer to the trade deadline and more so July 1st as Hart needs that new extension because I don't think it's a lock that he's a long-term guy on this team. Yeah, I mean, and then you look at it. I know a lot of people, in particular last year, were saying, well, trade Hart, get a haul, and then make Sam Harrison the number one. Look, Harrison, I think he started to play better of late. I, I don't know what ultimately his role will be in the NHL. If it'll be, you know, bonafide, legit top 12 goalie in the league starter, or if it's serviceable NHL player, I don't, I I can't go there yet. I haven't seen enough of him to know yet. And it's going to take some time with him in a backup position because he's not getting a ton of games. Um, What I know about Hart is he's playing unbelievable. (laughs) And to me, I mean, he's, one of the top goalies in the league. Um, he's kind of, you know, when you look at goaltenders, you go, you know what you're going to get out of him pretty much night in and night out. And at Kolosov still a little ways away, obviously Bjarnason and the other Russian that they took this summer way off. Um, Kolosov doing really well in the KHL, but I mean, mm, I don't know. I, I don't know how you handle this, but you're right. He's an arbitration eligible RFA after this year. And how does that affect any negotiate? Is it a, you know, a little three-year deal that you do or that makes them easier to move? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is here, but here's what I do know. That the goaltending position is paramount in this league. Always has been, always will be. And I, just taking this assumption that, oh, we'll put Arson in there. He'll be our starter. I don't know if, that, to me, there's a lot of risk there from a hockey standpoint. There is, and especially if you maybe want to take a step next year. Like, is 24-25 another rebuilding season? Like, this is year two already, and you're seeing how much tangible progress has already been made. Do you want to go in with, you know, uncertainty between the pipes? Yeah, big question mark in that. Yeah, question mark in that when maybe your your goal is to at least sniff the playoffs, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. who knows? Like, this year their goal isn't there is no goal it's just to develop their kids and if they make the playoffs great and if not no who cares but if your goal maybe next season is to make the playoffs and you have that uncertainty between the pipes then what happens now look obviously everyone knows what's going on in Edmonton and the absolute train wreck that's going on up there holy like Jack Campbell in the minors I think he has an 819 save percentage with Bakersfield oh and three Oh, and three, like that's been a disaster. They lose again last night. They called on Hart in the summer. They checked in on Swayman in the summer. I heard today that they kicked tires on Spencer Knight. They keep circling back with for Montreal, like, oh, will it be 
you know, Jake Allen is that like an option? I, that's just more patchwork in my opinion. Agreed. There is a tie between Hart and their new CEO of hockey operations, Jeff Jackson. Jeff Jackson is a former colleague of Carter Hart's agent. They have yet to reach out on Carter Hart. I don't know if it's completely because of Hockey Canada. And, you know, their former CEO is the former head of Hockey Canada, Bob Nicholson. So maybe that's bad PR that Edmonton doesn't want to touch. But as things get desperate and more desperate in Edmonton, as they continue to try and find ways to keep Connor McDavid happy with his agent becoming the CEO, his OHL coach becoming the head coach, do they make a desperate move? And Elliot Friedman on the Jeff Merrick show today said that they're weighing options internally that they may have to make a trade that they know that they're losing in the long term just to try and right this ship. Yeah. And I know that the Flyers would entertain taking back a Jack Campbell. It's not ideal. I know that they don't like that contract. But I mean, yeah, if he's got dry cycle attached to his hip. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going like RNH to take on the Jack. Jack Campbell contract's got five years left. Three years beyond this. Three years beyond this one? Yeah. Ugh. So it's $5 million. Now, look, if you could get Jack Campbell from Toronto, then you could do loads of work than an Urson Jack Campbell uh, pairing. But yeah, what like what's the price? Yeah. Like if, and this is completely spitballing. This is not anything I've heard because they haven't even talked in months, the Flyers and the Oilers. They have, there's been no discussion. So it's just complete spitballing. But like if they come at you and they say, okay, well, it starts with two first round picks and Dylan Holloway. And then we'll only tack onto that to bring in Hart and dump Jack Campbell. Can you? I don't know what the pain on Campbell. Can, uh, they ever... I maybe, but they're so up against the cap. Yeah, and they're gonna have to hand Hart. I would imagine that's at the least other part. Six million dollars. Yeah, next I mean, that's, year. to me, that's the other part. Like everybody assumes because of the importance of the goaltending position that you get a haul in return for it. I don't know that you get a haul in return for it. Because the team is going to have to pay him because he's got his contract is expiring, and you know goaltending just doesn't get the haul in trades. It's funny because when goaltending goes to free agency, they get paid, but in trades teams don't get a huge response. Like you look at the year, you know Markstrom got signed and Cam Talbot when he went to what Minnesota, and you know those guys all got paid, but it doesn't seem to create the haul in trade value. It's weird. I think that Edmonton is, and I do agree with you because I think that Ryan Miller trade from 2014 was something that scared off a lot of teams when St. Louis yeah. like went after him and they were, that was their big free um, trade deadline acquisition. And then they lost in the first round. And since then we haven't really seen goalies go for much via trade, but Edmonton is in such a unique situation and such a desperate situation. And there's a lack of, goaltenders who could solve it like they're a crap defensive team this isn't just bad yeah. goaltending if i'm harder i don't want to go home to play behind it yeah so like i mean the, like obviously jeremy swayman is the only option in my mind that could be a comparable addition to Hart because he's still young he's played well he has some upside he could be a goaltending for the foreseeable future I don't think Spencer Knight is there yet. I, I think obviously he's dealt with off ice issues and he hasn't played to the same level as Hart and Swayman. But I mean, are you going to not pay for Hart? Like pay out the nose for Hart 
while simultaneously dumping Jack Campbell and just go out and acquire Jake Allen. Like, is Jake Allen going to be the solution to Edmonton's problems? Yeah, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound with Jake Allen. And if this was, like, a team that was otherwise, like, even, like, average defensively, I would say, like, yeah, go get Jake Allen. He's a good enough goalie that he could play behind. He could be, like, a system. Yeah, Yeah, like, a let's say Cam Talbot. Like, Cam Talbot's having, like, an amazing season in L.A., but they're a super sound defensive team. Yep. He's a good system goalie. But, like, I don't think going out and getting Jake Allen, while he may be an upgrade on a Skinner or Jack Campbell, is that going to move the needle? No. I think that you may just have to bite the bullet and pay out the nose for Carter Hart or Jeremy Swayman, but given where the Bruins are at organizationally, I don't see them being in a position to listen on Jeremy Swayman and they can't take back Jack Campbell. Like I, like, like I said, I think that they sniffed around on Spencer Knight, but I don't think that those conversations went anywhere. And my hypothesis as to why is because of Jack Campbell, you still have to move that money because you're going to have to commit that much money to the, to the position. You just can't, not when you're paying Connor McDavid 15% of your cap right now and, and dry cycle 10%. But the Flyers are in a position where the Oilers, it would come at a hefty cost and maybe on paper it'd be an overpayment. But I do think that they could kill two birds with one stone because I don't think the Flyers ideally want to take on Jack Campbell, but they're able to take on Jack Campbell. And I think they would if the price was right. Like and they have a goalie that is a franchise goalie, in my opinion. Now, are the Oilers who are now under the tutelage of Jeff Jackson? I like obviously Kenny Holland is still the general manager, but it's the Jeff Jackson show out there, and Holland is a lame duck GM without a contract beyond this year. And I'm making any more decisions. So I mean, is this the point where Jeff Jackson, who may who was maybe presumably brought in to make Connor McDavid happy? going to say like I don't give a damn about first round picks I don't give a damn about former first round picks we need a goalie here at all costs because yeah. when is the last time that Edmonton had like a legitimate rock solid number one goaltender Dwayne Rollison yeah could be <laughs> the, um, like Cam Talbot had a, a good year or two yeah, he had a decent run there but yeah it, might, it may be Rolly to goalie yeah before that probably Tommy Sallow See, see, here's the deal, though. Like, to me, that team, like, if you can improve the team defensively, the goaltending will follow. No goalie is going to succeed. That that structure and the way they defend is going to drag every goalie with it. It just is. It's just they have no depth on the team, and their structure is shit. And I think they're just going to drag any goalie down with it, Carter Hart included, Jeremy Swayman. I think Boston should trade Linus Allmark instead of Swayman, but that's just me. Um, so who knows? But that's – I don't see how it can work. And Stuart Skinner, like, that, what a bad environment for him to be growing in the NHL, right? Because I think well, he's a decent enough goalie too. I do too. But, like, that – again, that environment is just going to damage him. He's just going to get – he gets shelled there. And, and ultimately, all those times that the red light goes off, it, it it will affect a goalie. Now he's twenty five. He's not like like he's twenty one or anything, but still, oof. I don't know. And I don't know what they theoretically. Do. You would just want like a Jack Campbell or not Jack Campbell, a Jake Allen, right? Like that would be a good partner for Stuart Skinner. 
But yeah, it did given, a defense like Vegas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But is it easier to just go out and pay through the nose for a goalie and just try and solve it that way? Or try and replace two, three guys on your back end? Yeah. Like Darnell Nurse is being paid north of nine million million dollars, but I think he's a seven and a half million dollar defenseman. Yeah, that's criminal. Like, criminal. I mean, and I think just like Darnell no Nurse. <laughs> yeah, full no move. You know, Evan Bouchard, who I really like as a player, has been putrid this year. Cody Cece playing in a top four capacity. Like, Philip Broberg hasn't lived up to his first-round pedigree. Like, it's it, it, it's it's messed up there. And then, to your point, your offensive depth is non-existent. You bring in a Connor Brown, who had a history with Connor McDavid in Erie, who I used to like as a player, but obviously has dealt with injuries here. And his contract is structured in a way on performance bonuses. So it may result in dead cap space next year. If he hurts a certain level, like it's, it's a really shitty situation out there. And I just wonder how desperate they'll get. But even as desperate as you get, you still have to find a taker for Jack Campbell. If you're going to make a significant addition, like Jack Campbell's contract has to go out the door. Yeah. And that's why I'm just waiting for them to call Philly. Like I was speaking to someone today and he said like, they're idiots for not calling Philly yet. Yeah. Because Philly could, they could kill two birds with one stone. Yeah. Everyone knows that Philadelphia is willing to weaponize their cap space. So, Mm. and again, this is like, it's like, I know Philly's waiting for it. So I don't know if it's just hockey Canada related or because that they don't want to pay out the nose for Carter Hart while simultaneously drop, uh, uh, Jack Campbell. Yeah, I'm going to sneak into the office there and put a block on any calls from Edmonton. I don't want any part of that Jack Campbell contract. None. And to lose hard on top of it, I'll pass. But we'll see where it goes. Um, I mean, they got Matias Ekholm, $6 million, 33 years old, too. I mean, geez. What a and he was like a saving that. grace last year. Yeah. For that back end and for Evan Boucher. Maybe he can play goalie. <laughs> Just tape him like Goldberg in the Mighty Ducks. Tape him to the net. Yeah, get some old Mylac uh, plastic shin pads on them and uh, stuff them in there, right? <laughs> Gee, this is bananas. That's a team. You think that uh, when Drysidle's up after next year or McDavid's up in two years after this, that either of those players leave? Because if they're going to leave, Edmonton's got to trade them. They can't just let them walk for nothing. I mean, I imagine they'll find they'll find a way to keep those guys. I bet McDavid walks. I bet you he's going to get out of there. I think he's pissed off. He but is. that's why like that's why I'm assuming that they're going to do anything to get this team right. And I, I just don't any... know that they can Ant. I mean they're, they're eating up such a huge percentage of the cap. I I don't know you can win in today's league when you're paying, you know, three or four guys the kind of dough that they are. You I mean you look at McDavid 12.5, what is Drysdale? 8.7ish and then nine and a half for Darnell Nurse, like how can you build a team when you're committing all that cap space to those guys? Well, I'm looking at it now, like yeah, 8.5 price, I don't. 8.5, that which is a, probably one of the best value contracts in the world. Oh, yeah, it's great. But it's like it's just money that was allocated to the wrong guys. Like, and you have, you know, CC, like when you have Brett Kulak, who I do like as a defenseman. Almost two point seven five million dollars on your third pair. 
CC at 3.25, Bouchard at 3.9. Like for me, it's just Darnell Nurse making $9.25 million and he's not a $9.25 million defenseman. At home, I think it depends on, and Nashville did retain salary on that, but I mean, I, he's not part of the problem there. Uh, it's it's after you get beyond the top five forwards and Nugent Hopkins hasn't been close to what he was last year, but when you get to like Fogel, McLeod, Ryan, Brown, Ernie, Gagne, like that's when it starts to get rough. Yeah. And when you have McDavid, who's presumably playing hurt and dry will step behind of what he usually is at. It's, it's a, it's a tough look. It's a tough yeah, look. They ain't, they ain't making the playoffs. And if they win the fucking lottery, I'm going to flip out. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine. Right. Um, last thing, uh, William Nylander. I mean, the price just keeps going up, up, up. And I, I mean, how can Toronto, I mean, they're gonna have to go north of 11 million. I would think, can you commit that with what you've already got committed up front, but also how can you lose it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like before the season, I thought like nine and a half was where he would fall. Yeah. That the Timo Meyer deal, I think Meyer was 8.8, would kind of mm-hmm. like, like cap Neil under nine and a half. But the way he's playing right now, it's a minimum 10, if not yeah. more, with the cap going up. And then you're going to be a year away from having to sign Mitch Marner. The only thing here that helps is that you're a year and a half away from John Tavares's contract expiring. Yeah. And you would imagine that his average annual value will get cut at least then probably in half, you know, he's making 11 million now. Yeah. He probably goes down to the five range, I would say, but he's still a very productive player in his own right. So you can't yeah. sell him too short. Even at 33, even at 33. So, I mean, if they could find, a, but then you have Mitch Marner who yeah. he's at, a smidge under 11 million right now he's probably gonna get bumped to 12 million i would say and this is all mm-hmm. just me spitballing here but and and Matthew, they're, because they're pending ufas they're not restricted this is ufa territory yeah exactly so i mean if they could find a maybe a way to make it work for a year then i think that you could get away with paying nylander 10 and a half 11 million dollars just for next year, because then a lot will get shifted around when Tavares is his deal is up. But I mean, when you're paying your fourth line center, $2.4 million, that's uh it's rough. And you know, their defense is so uncertain beyond Morgan Riley. Like they have nobody signed beyond 2025. Yeah, Brody's pending Brody, UFA. Klingberg's been a mess. Yeah. Giordano's Giordano. the oldest player in the league. Jesus. That's insane. Yeah, they're D guys. Riley is 29. Uh, Brody, 33. Klingberg, 31. Going on 52. Uh, McCabe, 30. And Giordano, 40. That's insane. Yeah. Unbelievable. It's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Yeah. How these names shake out with Nylander, Marner, Dreisaitl, McDavid. Over the next couple of years, it's going to be fascinating. Well, we've certainly said a lot, Ant. Yeah. What's up on uh, the fourth period.com? Well, my last piece was on um, Owen Tippett. Probably going to have one come out uh, tomorrow or sometime this week in regards to the news. Should touch on Sean Walker, Carter Hart, as obviously a very um, not dull time, but a quiet time of year in terms of transactions and trades and all that. But uh, no, I think it's going to start picking up here. And obviously, I'm doing more. Uh, 
um, league-wide stuff. Probably have some more interviews coming down the pike soon. All right, we'll check all that out at the fourthperiod.com. Make sure you follow Anthony at ademarco25, and uh, we'll be back next week. We promise. We're not going back on sabbatical. Been a lot to talk about. We got got to a lot in this episode, and um, it, was, it was good to catch up. And uh, we'll get back after it again coming up next week. So everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Leave us a five star rating and review. And we shall talk to you next time on Stick to Hockey Live. Have a great day. Enjoy your hockey, everybody. Mm-hmm.